Jude, and we'll be reading verses 11 through 13 this evening as we continue. This is another section we are beginning. This is um, actually the fourth um, section, which began in verse 8, and we continue through that portion of this section here in verse 11, actually. And we read, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the era of Balaam, and reward, or for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Uh, Several weeks back, I pointed out that there are seven main divisions within this epistle of Jude. I want to review those with you again briefly. The first is Jude's greeting in verses 1 and 2. The second is Jude's purpose for which he has written, verses 3 and 4. The third is Jude's warnings, verses 5 through 7, and we've dealt with all of these thus far. The fourth is Jude's woe, verses 8 through 13. The fifth is Jude's reminder, verses 14 through 16. The sixth is Jude's exhortation in verses 17 through 23. And then the seventh is Jude's doxology in verses 24 and 25, which I have referenced many times throughout this study of Jude already. So during our last study together, we began our study of the fourth of the seven divisions, beginning again in verse 8. And uh, we found in verses, this consists of verses 8 through 13, as we've read 11 through 13 this evening. And within verses 8 through 13, Jude provides a more detailed description of the ones he had mentioned in verse 4, if you recall, who turned the grace of God into a license to sin or into freedom to sin. And we saw in verses 3 and 4 Jude's purpose for writing the letter. And if you recall, he tells them to contend for the faith, but then he also mentions those who've come in who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the very uh, Lord Jesus Christ. And so in, this, in these verses now, he gives a more detailed description of them. As I previously mentioned, if you look back to verse 8, for instance, we read, Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Now remember, he says likewise. Prior to this, in the previous section, he had given these warnings. And within the warnings, if you recall, he had listed three specific warnings. And we detailed those uh, throughout our previous studies Now he says, likewise, those in verse 4, going back to verse 4, those who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. These are the same people he's referring to now in verse 8 when he says, likewise, also these filthy dreamers. As I mentioned, the adverb likewise is used to show the comparison between these wicked men and the three historical examples mentioned in verses 5 through 7. So he's saying, as are they, so are these. And that's what he is saying. Do describe these men who pervert God's grace first as filthy dreamers. The imagination of man is inherently wicked, and without the Holy Spirit's intervention, men confess just how wicked they are and how wicked they can be demonstrated in Noah's day. I took you to Genesis 6 5. If you recall, this has been a few weeks back now, when the scripture says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the wickedness of man will continue to 
demonstrate and man, or the heart of man will continue to demonstrate and manifest even more wickedness when the Lord does not divinely intervene, either through judgment or through redemption. And if you recall back to Romans 1, that becomes very clear because there are those whom God, I've, I've often referred to Romans 1 as the passive judgment of God. Because God, instead of raining down fire and brimstone like he did upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain, God is saying in Romans 1, okay, so you do not like to retain me in your knowledge. I will let you continue as you are and self-destruct. Now, they will be judged ultimately in eternity, we know, those who he refers to in Romans 1. But yet he is saying that I'm going to allow you to continue and the judgment of sin. Remember, you know this verse. You'd memorize this as a child, no doubt, if you grew up in church. And if not, you've surely heard it even as a, an adult in church many times, no doubt. For the wages of sin is, that's not changed. And even though it may seem to be prolonged at times in certain situations, it still has not changed. And so man left to himself is going to not only physically die, but he is spiritually dead and therefore will eternally die. And there will be that second death, if you will. And so we must remember that these filthy dreamers are those he's referring to in verse 4, and that God is saying that, that, uh, that the imagination of man being wicked will continue in manifestation of such wickedness. Then he goes on to explain that further when he says they defile the flesh in verse 8 as well. He says, likewise, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh. This speaks specifically to the intentional persistence of men to continually pollute their bodies. Left to themselves, men will self-destruct, as I mentioned a while ago in Romans 1, 24 through 31. Paul outlines that very clearly. Then he goes on to say they despise dominion. This refers to those who pervert grace as a means or excuse to sin, and they do so because they reject authority. Proverbs 12, 15, Proverbs 15, 10 speak to these types of people. Then forth, they dignity. And the noun dignities refers to glories. So to understand that properly, as we dealt with previously, men often claimed, have claimed to have seen a vision or dreamed a dream of which Jude alludes, a filthy dreamers, attributing such revelation to that of angels speaking to them. However, if you recall with me, we dealt with this somewhat more specifically in this portion of our study a week's back, the holy angels of God hold the truth and defend the truth of God. And yet those who speak of having angelic revelations are blaspheming the Lord and all that is holy perverting what the Lord has stated about his word, about his messengers, and his truth. Just as those who use the grace of God as an excuse for sin not only pervert grace, but also deny the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then verses 9 through 10. We read the example of this. While Michael, a holy angel and leader among the angelic order, would not rail against the devil, a fallen angel, men today blaspheme holy angels by speaking evil of them, by claiming to have received some new revelation when God has delivered the faith once delivered to all his people. Remember that. The faith once delivered to the saints. This goes right back to verse 3, and we are to contend for that faith. Not something new that's coming along. No, the faith. Not a faith, the faith. And that is a definite, the only definite article that exists in the English language. It is absolute, definitively, the faith once delivered unto the saints. Once and for all time. And so now these are those 
who would claim to have new revelation, if you will, and claim it comes from the holy angels or from God himself, which is therefore to blaspheme when God says he's delivered the faith once and for all and, and give God some credit to something God has nothing to do with. And if you don't believe that that takes place, consider this for a moment. In Matthew, we're told that there are those who will say, Lord, Lord, have we done wonderful works in thy name, cast out devils and such? He says, depart from me, I never knew you. They falsely credit God for something, saying, oh, Lord, we did this according to your word and in your power. And God says, no, you didn't. And he says, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So that's going on today as well. And people giving God some false credit for something, claiming this is of God, and it's not. And remember, we know that we are to try the spirits, as John says, to see that they be of God. We are to test and recognize those who are deceivers, who've come into the world, who are perverting the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we cannot just let, let someone who claims, oh, this is what God told me, just go on and profess such without calling that out and saying, where is that in Scripture? How do we, where, do, where do we find that in Scripture? Because people can claim whatever they want, and it's today it seems like the church has fallen into that category within the world secularly in which we don't want to offend anyone. Well, again, let me remind you of this truth. You don't have to offend people. Just speak the truth, and the truth itself is offensive. And so don't be afraid of speaking the truth in a right manner for the sake of propagating the truth and defending the faith contending for the faith, if you will. So even Michael would not rebuke Satan, and yet you've heard this verse often in, in, in uh, I believe, Peter, when it's in First Peter, if I'm not mistaken, but you recall the passage of Scripture in which it says that we are to submit unto the Lord, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, people view, often that's been greatly misquoted or misrepresented because people will say, rebuke the devil. Well, first of all, it doesn't tell us to rebuke the devil. Second, it is through submission to the Lord that we, are, that we are resisting the devil. Because the one thing Satan does not want us to do is submit to God. So it's not submit to the Lord first, then resist the devil. Listen, if you are submitting to the Lord, you don't have to resist Satan. The submission you have unto the Lord is the resistance of Satan. Because that's the one thing he does not want you to do, is to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Men will blaspheme that which is holy by speaking against the very truth what God has clearly delivered and declared to believers, while even the holy angels will not speak against the fallen angels. So tonight we continue our study of this fourth division of Jude's epistle by examining Jude's proclamation of woe to these men who perverted the grace of God, claiming that it provided a license, an excuse, or a freedom to sin. Now the word woe is an interjection. You know in English grammar what an interjection is, surely, right? Stop! Hurrah! Words that are meant to emphasize and to make an emphatic statement. They are, to, they are used to place dramatic emphasis on that which is being stated. And the interjection, woe, is intended to catch the attention of the reader in emphasizing the terror of the situation which is being addressed. So from the statement in verse 11, Jude is drawing the reader's attention in an emphatic manner to the terror or the horror of the subject matter of that which he has written. And there are three truths within verse 11 by which Jude explains this woe he has pronounced. Woe unto them. 
he says, for they have gone the way of Cain and ran greedily after the era of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. Now he used three examples as warnings, if you recall previously. Now he uses three examples of this woe, of the terror of these of whom he speaks. And he mentions these three things, these three individuals and their situation to pronounce this woe. First, the way of Cain. Second, the error of Balaam. And third, the gainsaying of Kor. Now let's just stop for a moment. It's Bible quiz time. (laughs) What is the way of Cain? I know what most of you are probably going to say because this is the common answer, but I've told you this many times. What is the way of Cain? Would someone like to answer? Okay, that's actually the correct answer. I would say it I would say it like this. Well, I say that because most people say the way of Cain is what? Murder. That's what most people... That's not what the way of Cain is. The way of Cain is any and every way other than God's way. And he had said bringing, not bringing the right sacrifice. What was Cain actually doing? Cain was saying... He was giving the work of his own hands. You say, wait a minute, but wasn't... Wasn't Abel a, a keeper of the sheep while Cain was a tiller of the ground? You say, well, Abel brought the sheep and Cain bring, brings the, the best he had to offer. That's not the point. God had determined already what his way was. And he had declared that way. And we know that because Abel offered that to the Lord. And Abel did not offer that out of convenience. Let me prove that to you. To offer a sheep out of the herd was much more costly than offering some vegetables or fruit out of the ground. Think about that for a moment. So you can't say, oh, it was just convenient for Abel. No, it was not convenient for him. It was costly for him. The point is, God says, I require this blood sacrifice, and Abel brings that to the Lord, while Cain says, well, this is more convenient for me, and after all, this is the very best of that which I have produced, and so I'm going to offer it to the Lord. Then second, what is the error of Balaam? Do you recall that? Yes, Balaam was being bribed <laughs> to curse Israel when he was supposed to be a prophet to them. <laughs> and yet he is now being bribed to curse them, you recall? And so what did he do? We'll look into this more. If you recall, how did he end up doing it? Because he said, I cannot curse the people God has blessed. What can I do to curse them? But here's what Balaam knew. Oh, wait a minute. I cannot really curse them, but I know how to bring God's judgment on them. And how was that? How would God, why would God bring judgment upon the people? For what reason? Sin. But what sin specifically? Do you not remember? He drew in the pagan daughters of the land that the children of Israel, the men, would then lust after them and commit fornication and intermarriage with them. Not because they were of a different, a different uh, lineage, because they were pagan is the point. And God then judged the people because of their sin. But Balaam told 
the king what would be necessary to cause the people to sin that would therefore result in God's judgment upon them rather than his blessing. Then you have the gainsaying of Korah. What, what did Korah do, do you recall? Yes. Yes, God had set Moses in authority to, to rule and to lead the people, and they rise up in rebellion against Moses after coming out of Egypt, if you recall, and specifically what happened to Korah. The earth opened up and literally swallowed them. And they, they perished, a great number of people who followed after him. So these are the three people of which Jude now brings into it, to our attention to, and he does so by saying, woe unto them. Unto who? Not unto these people. Not unto Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Though, yeah, woe unto them also. But they're gone. He's saying, woe unto those of verse 4. Let's go back to verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. These are those who are perverting the grace of God, turning it into freedom to sin, a license to sin. And these are the ones who, of whom Jude says, woe unto them. This is a horrific, terrible situation. So these three truths, the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the gainsaying of Kor, are showing not only the wicked actions of these men who pervert God's grace, but also the progression of the consequence and result of such wickedness. Let's begin with the way of Cain. Cain rejected God's vision and approached God. That is the way of Cain. Listen, woe unto anyone. Is that not what perverting the grace of God is? Perverting the grace of God is not murder, necessarily. But perverting the grace of God is saying, it doesn't matter what God says about this. This is what we believe about this. God demands righteousness and holiness, which is only in Jesus Christ. Oh, but if you, you, you ask Jesus in your heart, quote unquote, just live like you want to. There's always grace to abound. Because, by the way, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Right? But that's not what that's talking about, by the way. Immediately following that, what does Paul go on to say? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer there in Romans 1, 6, or 6, 1 and 2? So immediately following what he says that states in verse 20, he then goes into, oh, so do we continue in sin so grace can abound? Absolutely not. But today there are those, such as those who perverted the grace of God in the day of Jude, they continue to go about today, who would say grace is a license to sin, and that is a great perversion of grace and also it is a denying of the lordship of jesus christ and jude says that clearly in verse four i believe it's fitting to ask the question then what is the way of cain and people immediately associate this statement with murder after all it was cain who committed the first recorded murder when he killed his brother abel as we know and while this was obviously a horrendous offense against god and against his brother abel not to mention the other members of Abel's murder was a result of the way of Cain and not the way itself. Murder was the product of Cain coming his own way unto God. Because had he not gone his own way and submitted to the Lord, he would not have been jealous or angry at God or jealous of his brother and the acceptance of his brother. The only reason he was jealous is because God refused him and accepted Abel because Abel came 
by the provided way, God's way. And so the anything and everything other than God's way. God obviously had already established this way, and Abel knew that, or he would not have offered the sacrifice. In Genesis 4, 3 through 8, we read. And in process of time, it came to pass that came brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. This is not because Abel was greater than Cain. This is because Abel submitted himself to God's way and said, I must approach God as God has provided a way for me to approach him. And I cannot approach him apart from his provision. Are you following this? Now, we're not offering sacrifices today. We don't have to. Why? Because Christ is the offered sacrifice by God. He is the provision. But how many people today continue to attempt to approach God in their own way? And every single one of them will be rejected forever, eternally. Because God has made provision. And it's only through God's provision that we can ever approach him, that we can have a relationship with him. The Lord had respect to Abel and his offering, but then verse 5, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. (laughs) And Cain was very wroth. Wait a minute. Why was he angry? God accepted Abel's offering and rejected his offering, accepted Abel through his submission to the offering he'd already made, his provided way, while rejecting Cain as well as Cain's offering because it was not his provided way. And that's why he got angry. That's why he killed Abel. Look at it. Listen, here's the point. Jesus says that if the world hate you, remember first it hated me. Why would it hate us just because it hated him? Because it's his life in us that's being manifested and demonstrated, and it reminds them of him and righteousness, and they hate righteousness. Why do they hate righteousness? Because they are rejected in their own way. While we've been received by God, and they do not like that, and therefore become wroth. Cain hated Abel, and Cain could not get to God. So because Cain could not demonstrate his anger upon God, he demonstrates it upon the one who represented righteousness and the Lord, which, of course, in this case was Abel. His countenance fell, the scripture says, verse 6. The Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth? And why is thou his fallen? Here it is. Notice, if thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. Now notice what he says here. If you do well, meaning not that Cain could produce something of his own. That's not the point. Abel did not produce the lamb. Abel just offered that which God had provided. He, he, he submitted himself to God's provision of his ex- way to, to the Lord. And so that's what Abel did. And so he says, if you do well, then you'll be accepted. Why are you angry? This is not, this is not because Abel's better than you, Cain. It's because you've rejected me and my provision, and you want me to accept you nonetheless when I will not accept you. lieth at the door if you do not well. When you go your way, the results are never going to end well. <laughs> do you not understand that? When you go your own way, it will never end up well. But God's way is glorious. It's his provision in Christ, of course. So then he goes on to say, 
If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Why did he murder him? Because he's angry at God. And Abel was accepted by God, and he's angry that God accepted Abel when all Abel did was submit to the Lord. That's all it was. So Cain did that which was, came natural to him. Cain was, again, a tiller of the ground or a farmer, and so he brought the best of his crop to the Lord as an offering. Yet Cain decided that he, what he could produce would be fine to be offered to the Lord, and the fundamental problem with this way of thinking is that God does not want the best we have to offer him but he has made provision for us by sacrificially giving his son the greatest gift that man could ever imagine. Isn't it ironic? Men willingly, willfully reject God's provision, which is the greatest gift that could ever be given. While expecting God to accept that they can offer him when it pales in comparison to that which God had in his son. You know what that's really saying? man saying, you know, I think I want to be God instead of you. And you should accept what I have because it's the best I have. I'm acknowledging that I'm giving you my best. Why can't you acknowledge that? When God's provided the best there is in Christ, and men continually willfully reject him. Hebrews 11.4 speaks of Abel and Cain. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Is it that no, the sacrifice is superior to Cain's. That was the problem. By which he obtained, able wit, obtained a witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. So the testimony of Abel is that of righteousness because he was submitted to the Lord in embracing God's provision. We know God provided the example of the blood sacrifice by clothing Adam and Eve with animal skins. The fact that the scripture declares that Abel offered the sacrifice by faith, is indication that the Lord had made known to man what he required. You'll find throughout the scriptures, Noah, being warned by God, built an ark. How did Noah build an ark? Oh, by faith. But wait a minute. What did he have faith in? He had faith in God's word. Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice by faith. Oh, that was just off the cuff because he was a till, uh, keeper of the field or a, 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 a herdsman. So he just offers his lamb because, hey, that's, that that's, comes natural to me. Of course not. It's because God had declared this is what he required, and Abel willingly gave of that. So we know God had spoken to man concerning this, to Adam, no doubt. God would not allow man to work to produce the sacrifice, but rather the Lord required a sacrifice that he provided. While many people may not see the difference between Cain offering something which he naturally worked to produce and Abel offering the firstling of his flock, there is a distinct difference, even though they each had their own occupation from which they gave. It makes no difference as far as that this is what he had. Again, I would say to you, offering crops is much less costly than offering one of your lambs. So it's not just a matter of convenience. While Cain labored to produce the fruit and no doubt offered the best he had to the Lord. It was still the fruit of his hands that he offered, even though the Lord ultimately made the ground and his labor fruitful. Abel, on the other hand, watched and cared for the flock, but Abel did not give life to one lamb of his flock. Even though he's watching them, he didn't give them life. He didn't create them. 
God gave the life to the creature, and God required the blood and life of the Lamb to which he had given life. 1 John 3, 11 and 12 say, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. When he says his own works were evil, it's not just saying Cain was just absolutely evil. Abel was absolutely righteous. No, it's talking again about the sacrifice. The sacrifice of Cain was evil, and the sacrifice of Abel was righteous. That's why he slew him. So the passage at first glance, 1 John 3, 11 and 12, may seem to establish that it was murder which was the way of Cain. However, as you consider the entirety of John's teaching in these verses, we see that it was the reason Cain killed Abel was the root of John's writing in this passage. Cain killed Abel because Cain was wicked and Abel was righteous. Cain's offering was wicked, Abel's was righteous. Therefore, manifested in Abel by the more excellent sacrifice, God's way. Inversely, it was wickedness manifested in Cain because he went his own way. So remember this, the way of Cain. You don't have to murder someone to go the way of Cain. All you have to do is reject God's provision and you've gone the way of Cain. Because now you are attempting to approach God based upon that which you can do, that which you can offer, that which you say is the best you have, rather than submitting to God's provision and saying, Lord, I will humble myself before you and I'm thankful for your provision. So to sum it up again, the way of Cain is any way other than God's provided way in Jesus Christ. Number two, the error of Balaam. Balaam deceived God's people and caused them to sin. Numbers 31, 16. Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. 2 Peter 2, 12 through 15. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things they understand not, and utterly, shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to ride in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery, and they cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children." which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bazor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. There you have it spelled out in Peter's epistle. Revelation 2.14. But I have a... Thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication this is all about while way the way of cain is the any way other than god's way rejecting christ by the way woe unto them who've gone the way of cain but in verse four what did it say that these are those who reject or deny the very lord jesus christ perverting the grace of god woe unto them who commit the error of balaam what is the error of balaam deceiving the children of god deceiving israel in that case in the sense of tempting them to sin, knowing that the judgment of God would come upon them. Those who pervert the grace of God, what benefit could they possibly receive in perverting the grace of God? Only their own filthy, wicked pleasure of watching God's judgment come upon even, when I say judgment, correction, chastening, upon those of his own people who would fall into such error or temptation of sin. 
By the way, don't think for one minute that the wicked do not rejoice when the righteous fail. You know why they do so? There's really an easy answer to this. It sure makes them feel better about themselves. And it gives them reason for reproaching the name of Christ, even not really that it does, but it allows them opportunity. Then there are those third, who perished in the rebellion of Kor, which demonstrates where the way of Canaan era of Balaam lead, which is destruction. Here's that progression. Oh, perverting the way, uh, uh, perverting grace. Okay, okay, I'll reject God's way. I'll go my way. But I'm not satisfied with that. You know what else I want to do? I don't only want to reject God's way and go my way. Oh, I want to make sure others do the same thing. So I will lead them in error, which ultimately results in the destruction of Kor. Utter destruction. That progressive nature I'm speaking of. And number 16, 1 through 3. Now Kor, the son of Ezhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Now consider this for a moment. Moses and Aaron did not lift themselves up before the congregation of the Lord. God placed them there to lead. They didn't, they didn't take this on themselves to lift themselves to this place. God, Moses said, I can't do this. And he says, I, I stutter. Remember, I'm not able to do this. And God says, who, who formed the tongue? Who gave the ability to speak? Am I not the one? And then he sent Aaron with Moses. And so this was not something that have this group of men, Kor and others, who decide, well, guess what? We don't like Moses. We don't like his righteousness, holiness, leading people this way. Who are you to raise up against? You're just as good as you, Moses. Here what you find is them rebelling against the Lord's authority that he has placed and Obviously, they've gained up with others. Did you catch that? It wasn't just one or two. This is a gang of them now. What did we just see? Men who pervert the grace of God, the way of Cain, who then fall into the error of Balaam. And what is that? The way of Balaam is deceiving others to commit the same sins, which will lead to absolute destruction. Judah's just paving the way here for us to see how this works out with these examples throughout the Old Testament. Number 16, 31 through 35, go on to say, And it came to pass, as he made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses and all the men that pertained or appertained unto Korah and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. I would say that's pretty absolute, definitive, total destruction. (laughs) Oh, not only the people, but their houses, all that appertained to them. Anything that had do with them, God says, I'm ridding the whole world of you. So in these woes, I know it's only once, woe, but it's woe unto them, and he gives the three examples of the terror and the horrific condition and circumstances surrounding these. 
as Jude declares these woes upon those who by going their own way, rejecting God's way, deceiving others by the error, the perversion of their ways into destruction such as Kor, he is showing us the emphasis of the terror of such a way. Now, in contrast to this, you say, why, why is Jude, is he not diverting from his original thesis of contending for Absolutely not. He is emphasizing the importance of contending for the faith. Because there are those out there who reject God's provision, reject God's way, and in the name of God, pervert the grace of God, leading others astray, which ultimately is going to end in destruction. Whereas God's way leads to eternal life to joy immeasurable eternal joy meaning not that we earn eternal life meaning that in christ we are given god's way to even emphasize a little further close with this for the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yes, sir. I don't know about that, but I would say this, of course, you know, obviously different spellings because it's coming from a different language. So the spellings come out different. Same person, of course, but I don't know about that. I've never, I'm not, I couldn't answer that. Yeah, I, I, I could, I can't that personally. Someone else may know more about that than I do, but I, I'm, I'm completely ignorant of the question, but I just totally, I can't even begin to answer that. So I'm not certain. Yes, sir.